there, and welcome to episode 33 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your opinionated and persnickety host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. With these next two episodes, we are over halfway through season three. Episode 13, The Payoff, and episode 14, The Double Wall. I'm coming to you once again from the box room, except I have a special guest because we have acquired at this time two new cats. They were neighborhood ferals that we ended up rescuing. And Gomez is hanging out with me. So you'll probably hear him move around from time to time and maybe sneeze because he seems to have a bit of the sniffles. So today's ambient noises, aside from everything else that you hear in my house, you have some extra noises probably provided by Gomez. Also, I am recording on very little sleep, so let's hope I'm coherent. Anyway, let's go to Hawaii. What do you got, Steve? So far, a nameless rummy trying to make a phone call. He might bleed to death. HPD has got a half a dozen cars cruising the neighborhood looking for him. Episode 13, The Payoff. Air date, December 9th, 1970. Directed by John Llewellyn Moxie. This is his second of two episodes. And written by Ken Pettis. This is his third of eight episodes. A drunk named Jace heads up to his room where a guy named Vince is waiting for him because he's been looking for him everywhere. They're old friends in the criminal sense. They once pulled a job together. Jace says that Madge took the dough and ran, using him to double-cross the rest of the group. Despite Jace's insistence that Madge is the dirty rat that Vince wants, Vince shoots Jace, then stuffs a bunch of money into Jace's mattress and scatters a few bills on the floor before leaving Jace for dead. Plot twist! Jace isn't quite dead. He has enough strength to get to the window in time to see Vince drive away. With Madge. He then gets himself outside to the landlord and demands a dime for the phone. He calls 5-0, but hangs up without speaking. He tries to make a long-distance call, but again hangs up when he realizes the landlord is listening. Instead, he takes some newspapers and leaves. Landlord Bemis calls 5-0 and tells McGarrett what he knows, which isn't a whole lot because this isn't a rooming house where you ask questions. Steve Dano and Kono check out Jace's room and find the blood, a slug, and the money. Steve tells Kono to get the word out and the lab boys in. Steve notes that some of the currency was special issue, silver certificate, $10 bills, 
and has since been pulled out of circulation. He tells Dano to call the FBI about it. Meanwhile, Jace stumbles to a house and lets himself inside. There he makes the long-distance phone call he abandoned before, to Toomey Walsh in Seattle. Lila Daniels comes home to find Jace bleeding on her couch, waiting for Toomey Walsh's return call. She wants to get him a doctor, but he won't let her. He's going to talk to Toomey, and then Lila's going to forget everything she hears as soon as he leaves. Before she can argue further, Toomey calls. Steve is looking at a search grid when Chin Ho comes in with information on Jace. He did time in Honolulu before going to Seattle. Turns out the money in his room is from the Bannister ransom. The Washington governor's son was kidnapped but murdered despite the ransom being paid. Steve has Kono and Chen Ho call the banks and tells them to be on the lookout for any silver certificate $10 bills. Jace tells Toomey to hit them, meaning Vince and Madge, hard before hanging up. He tries to leave, but Lila again begs him to stay. Instead of arguing, he collapses. Meanwhile, Toomey calls Lou, the final member of their group. He says they have unfinished business in Hawaii. Jace wakes up in Lila's house. She insists on getting him a doctor, but he doesn't want any help that will bring the cops. He also can't afford the doctor that she knows who will do things off the books. Lila offers to get the money, but Jace refuses. He asks for a bottle instead. Bemis can't give 5-0 any more information about his tenant, but directs him to a bartender who directs them to Lila, who works there. She hustles drinks, but not from Jace. They go way back. The bartender gives them Lila's address. Toomey and Lou gear up to look for Vince and Madge, now that they know the double cross is them and not Jace and Madge. Meanwhile, Vince goes to his hotel and grabs a paper. Up in the room, Madge gives the valet some things for cleaning, taking the money from a suit jacket pocket and putting it in her purse with her gun. Vince comes in. There's nothing in the papers about Jace, but that's not surprising. It might take them a while to find his body. Madge is still on an edge. She's been living on the edge for too long, worried that Toomey and Lou might find her and kill her. Vince assures her that running into Jace was good luck. By killing him and planting the money in his room, Toomey and Lou will see the news and stop looking for her too. The only trouble is, Jace is still alive, and 5-0 finds him at Lila's. This is one of those episodes that I think of as like an unspooling episode, that the thread unravels and the audience and 5-0 end up knitting together the story. Because when this episode starts, we just see Jace, who's obviously got a heavy drinking problem, stumbling up to his room at this rooming house and going inside where Vince is waiting. Whenever someone is waiting for you in your room and you're not expecting them, it's probably never a good thing. And it's definitely not a good thing for Jace because Vince confronts him about being double-crossed And you get the idea that Madge used Jace to get the money from whatever this job is because they never, they don't say at that point. And Madge then double-crossed Jace and took off with the money. So left him high and dry as well. And Vince ends up shooting him anyway. And then he plants the money in the mattress and scatters a few bills on the floor. And you have no idea why the hell he's doing this. It just seems so suspect. And Jace is gut shot which in any other episode, if anybody else gets gut shot, that is not a main character. They are dead within minutes. But Jace has plot work to do. And so he lives long enough. He comes to and gets to the window, sees Vince drive off with Madge, who at this point in the episode, and throughout most of the episode until you actually meet Madge, you think that she's like this 
brilliant mastermind. She's the one playing all of these men to get this money. But he sees that it's Madge in the car with Vince and realizes that Vince was the one in on the double cross with Madge. So he goes to try to make this phone call. He is gut shot. And he goes into the landlord's office and is asking him for a dime. And the landlord is like, what happened to you? And he goes, I just need a dime. You have to, you're the landlord here. You have to have a dime for the phone. And he won't say anything about what's wrong with him. But the landlord can't let it go. And I'm like, I kind of don't blame you here. Because if, if one of my tenants showed up at my office bleeding profusely from his stomach, I would also have questions. So then Jace makes... He first makes the call to Steve at 5-0 but hangs up because he changes his mind and then tries to call Timmy Walsh long distance from there but realizes the landlord is listening in. And I think this is just, I don't think it was expressly said in the episode, this is just my take on that is that he hangs up from 5-0 because he's obviously bleeding profusely. He's been shot in the gut. I think Jace knows that he's not going to make it. And therefore, he has the option to choose between justice and vengeance, and he checks vengeance. Cannot blame him for that. But he manages to grab some newspaper to staunch the bleeding, and he goes stumbling off. So later, when you see him show up to Lila's house, you're kind of wondering if he intended to go there, or if this was just some random stranger's house, and he just happened to find it unlocked and he's just going to use their phone because he kind of he goes in because this is you know 1970 nobody locks their doors he goes in and he gets on the couch and he's bleeding all over their couch and it's like do you know these people or are you just ruining some poor stranger's house they're going to come home and find you on the phone bleeding profusely but it turns out yes he does know the house and it belongs to Lila who is an old friend And it's kind of implied through their first interactions that there was a potential for them to be something other than friends at some point, maybe before Jace went away the first time. And Lila is clearly in love with him. And Jace sort of eventually kind of reciprocates it in a way because as he goes through the motions of of dying after making his phone call, he mentions something about how they never got together and that they probably should have. It's not too late. I could get him. He could fix you up. And then... Well, we could go away together somewhere. Stop dreaming. Get me a drink. I don't have anything. That'll do it. Just get me a drink and I'll go. I don't you. I don't have anything. Then go get something. Oh, Chase. Please, Lila. Please. Boy. That Madge, whoever she is. She sure must have had you drooling to talk you into... You shut up and go get me a bottle. Okay. Are you okay? We'll get you something. Whatever happened to us? How come? How come you and Neely... And he is a bit kind of abusive towards Lila because he's adamant about not getting a doctor and kind of yells at her when they're arguing about it, says some not nice things. 
But, I mean, he is dying, so you kind of give him a break for that. But overall, their interaction, it's a little bit toxic, but it's actually kind of sweet as well. But anyway, while he's bleeding at Lila's, the landlord calls 5-0 and 5-0 goes into the room and looks around and finds the blood and they realize that it's not going to take Jace long to die because he is bleeding out and they need to find him fast to find out what happened, who shot him, why he was shot, all of that fun stuff. And they also find the money, which includes silver certificate $10 bills. I looked this up the other day because I'd never heard of this. And apparently they were special issue currency that I think they say in the episode was only ones, fives, and tens. But they were issued starting like in the 1800s, the late 1800s. It was basically done to appease the people who felt like the U.S. was going to the gold standard. So the silver certificate bills were, I guess, based on silver. I don't know. I didn't really thoroughly read the Wikipedia article on it. But basically, these were in circulation starting in the late 1800s. And there were variations printed up until the 1950s. And as Steve said, that the government pulled them out of circulation in the late 1960s. Because he said it was a few years ago. And this episode took place in the 1970s. So I'm guessing late 60s, they pulled them out of circulation. So that could be a clue. And Dano, of course, runs down the money and finds out that it was part of the ransom for the Bannister case. So now we know what job it was that Jason, Vince, and Madge were all involved with, along with Toomey and Lou. See, remember the uh, Bannister case in Seattle about six years ago? Oh, yeah, yeah. Governor Bannister's son, he was uh, kidnapped and murdered. Nobody knew he was dead until after the governor had paid $500,000 for his release. Are these the serial numbers of the Bannister ransom? Right. Case was never closed, kidnappers never found, and none of the ransom money ever recovered. Until now. What do you mean? That dough we found under the mattress was part of it. The episode never explains why the son was killed. We also don't know how old the son is, but given the fact that Steve refers to him as a boy, he could be anywhere from 5 to 47 in white man years. So there are really no details given about the circumstances that led to the governor's son's death, other than he was kidnapped. We don't know the particulars, but we do now know the score. And we also know that this $500,000 was paid Madge was manipulating Jace into thinking that they were double-crossing everybody else, when in reality, it was Vince who was using Madge to use Jace to double-cross everybody. So the rest of the group, Lou and Toomey, think that Jace and Madge have the money, when in reality, it's Vince and Madge that have the money. Vince is in the clear according to Toomey and Lou, because he has made it appear that he's one of them that's been double-crossed. So the particulars of this background story are starting to come together for us, but not necessarily for 5L. And we get some more details when we hear part of the conversation that Jace has with Toomey. We know that he's calling, he's explaining everything that's happened to him, and he's calling Toomey to get the vengeance here are your bad guys, come and get them, because Jace knows that he's not going to live long enough to either exact revenge himself or to see justice done. But he does live long enough to tell Steve and 5-0 a few things, because 5-0 is looking for Jace, obviously, and they are able to extract from the landlord, who at one point says that in a place like this, you don't hear anything in regards to the gunshots. 
but he does know that Jace hangs out at a bar around the quarter. When they go and talk to the bartender there, Oliver, he tells them that Jace talk. Jace usually doesn't talk to anybody, but he talks to Lila. Lila hustles drinks there, but never hustles from Jace. They just sit and talk when things are slow because they're old friends. And so Oliver gives them Lila's address. So they go check that out. Looking for Lila, find Jace instead, bleeding to death on the floor. Because instead of a doctor, he wants a bottle. And for whatever reason, Lila does not feel like she can challenge, successfully challenge a man who's bleeding to death on her floor. I think I could take him, but that's just me. Anyway, so she's left to go get a bottle for him. And Philo appears in the meantime. Steve is able to question Jace, and he only gets a little bit of information. He gets the name Timmy Walsh. He gets the name Lou. He gets the names Vincent Madge. And they know that this has to do something with the Bannister kidnapping. It's all they've got. Well, Lila happens to see them at her house, so of course she splits. But they're not giving up yet. They do have a few leads, one of which is Oliver the bartender. So he has Kono go back and sit at the bar and says if Lila comes in or if Lila tries to make contact, grab her, which he does. Lila calls Oliver asking for help and Oliver immediately passes the information of her whereabouts to Kono and Kono goes and gets her. And then Lila helps to fill in some of the blanks. Hold it right there, Lila. After Jace Goldman picked up the uh, ransom money, he turned it over to this Madge woman. Yes. And he never mentioned her last name on the phone to Toomey Walsh? No. How about Vince's? And he never mentioned their last names to you at any other time? Never. You sure, Lila? Well, yes. Then, so far as you know, the five people involved in the kidnapping and murder of that boy were Jace Gorman, Toomey Walsh, someone named Kelso, and Vincent Madge, whose last names you don't know. That's right. All right. All right. Uh, go ahead. Well, Jace thought that he and Madge were double-crossing the rest of the gang. But what he didn't know is that Vince and Madge were playing him for a patsy. They kept the money. And he told this to Toomey Walsh on the phone. Poor stupid jerk. And so we're introduced to Toomey Walsh because of the phone call that Jace makes. And I'm just mind-numbed by the fact that somebody named their kid Toomey. Anyway, Toomey calls Lou. He says, we gets to get to Hawaii. And they go. So they know the story. So now it's, we know all of the players. And 5 is now catching up. Meanwhile, we have Vince and Madge in their hotel room being unpleasantly toxic because it's clear now that Vince is the mastermind. He used Madge to manipulate Jason to being a patsy, but he's also used it so Madge is getting all of the blame. Of course, blame the woman. Why wouldn't you? Men. Anyway, Madge is kind of set up as this femme fatale when in reality... She's currently kind of falling apart from the pressure because running into Jace terrified her. She's been living on the edge for the last six years because she keeps worrying that Toomey and Lou are going to find her. And Vince is kind of in the clear on this, so he's not quite feeling the same pressure. And 
their relationship is literally all about sitting on this money until they can finally spend it. And with this plan of running into Jace, because it was just happenstance, Vince sees this as an out. They plant the money on Jace, he gets killed, they find the body, and eventually everybody quits looking for him. The case is now closed. So it's all just a little while longer, and Madge is clearly near the end of the rope. It's kind of like waiting for the other shoe to drop, isn't it? Cockroach Roosty was living and it'll take him weeks to find his body. I wouldn't worry about it. I'm not worried about it. not worried about it at all. I just wish it were all over patience do me a favor just one little favor uh, yeah. don't ever say that to me again because i've been patient for almost six years now i have been very patient and very scared Madge, come on take it easy will you i know how it's been no you don't you don't know how it's been at all you haven't been hiding out for six years you haven't gone to bed at night dreaming about the money you couldn't spend and you haven't weakened in the morning and wondering if today was the day that Lou and Toomey would find you and maybe kill you. So she, she and Vince go back and forth a couple of times. They're a real unpleasant couple. I don't think they would get invited to dinner parties in the future. I'm just saying. But anyway, when we first meet Madge, she's in the hotel room alone and a valet comes to pick up some dry cleaning. And one of the items is the suit jacket that Vince was wearing when he was in Jace's room at the rooming house. And she takes the money out of it before she hands it over and she just sticks it into her purse. Later, Vince finds that money in her purse and asks her if she spent any of it. And she said, yeah, she bought these earrings at the hotel gift shop. And he scolds her saying that was part of the ransom money. And she's like, well, how the hell was I supposed to know that? Then they have another fight about the money. And Vince says, okay, it'll be fine. It's just a couple of tens. No one's going to know. Meanwhile, Toomey and Lou have arrived in Hawaii and are on their way to that hotel. So it's very much a race for 5-0 to figure all of this out before Toomey and Lou find Vince and Madge. And as it turns out, those earrings are going to be everyone's undoing. You know what we should be doing? Taking a look at this guest cast, because it's pretty fabulous. Vince Ryan was played by Albert Salmi. He was Pete Ritter on Petroselli and Yadkin on Daniel Boone. He also turned up in episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Wagon Train, Stony Burke with Jack Lord, Rawhide, The Twilight Zone, Route 66, The Fugitive, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Lost in Space, The Big Valley, The Virginian, That Girl, Gunsmoke, Night Gallery, Bonanza, Ironside, Heck Ramsey, Kung Fu, Beretta, Future Cop, BJ and the Bear, Dallas, The Fall Guy, The A-Team, Simon and Simon, Trapper John M.D., Murder, She Wrote, Knott's Landing, and the 1988 Mission Impossible. He appeared in the movies Breaking In, Love Child, Burned at the Stake, Caddyshack, Brubaker, Steel, Empire of the Ants, Moonshine County Express, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, The Take, The Devil's Backbone, Hour of the Gun, and Something Big. And he was in the TV movies The Andersonville Trial, The Manhunter, Night Games, Undercover with the KKK, and Thou Shall Not Kill. And he was in the miniseries, Till We Meet Again, Dress Gray, and Fatal Vision. Lila Daniels was played by the always wonderful Joyce Van Patten. This is her first of two episodes. She was Claudia Granis on The Good Guys. 
Iris Chapman on The Mary Tyler Moore Show and Maureen Slattery on Unhappily Ever After. She also turned up in episodes of The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Stony Burke with Jack Lord, The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis, The Outer Limits, The Virginian, The Andy Griffith Show, Family Affair, Bold Ones, The New Doctors, McLeod, Cannon, The Bob Newhart Shows, The Streets of San Francisco, Mannix, The New Dick Van Dyke Show, Amy Prentice, Columbo, The Rockford Files, Lou Grant, Sisters, Brooklyn Bridge, Law & Order, Oz, The Sopranos, The Good Wife, and Boardwalk Empire. She appeared in the movies Diane, God's Pocket, Angel's Perch, Grown Ups, Marley and Me, Infinity, Monkey Shines, St. Elmo's Fire, The Bad News Bears, Mame, Something Big with Albert Salmi, and The Trouble with Girls. And she was in the TV movies The Stranger Within, Winner Take All, To Kill a Cop, Murder at Mardi Gras, You Can't Take It With You, Another Woman's Child, The Demon Murder Case, Malice in Wonderland, under the Influence, The Haunted, and Breathing Lessons, and she was in the miniseries, The Martian Chronicles. Madge was played by Marilyn Rue. This is her first of two episodes. She was Marjorie Grant on Bracken's World, Hilary Madison on Executive Suite, Daphne DeMera on Days of Our Lives, Angela Schwartz on Fame, Carolyn Ryan on Bridges to Cross, Annie Hartington on Houston Nights, and she was Jean O'Neill on Murder, She Wrote. She also turned up in episodes of The Rebel, Gunsmoke, Perry Mason, Bourbon Street Beat, Bonanza, The Untouchables, Route 66, 77 Sunset Strip, I Spy, Burke's Law, The Fugitive, Star Trek, The Wild Wild West, The Man from Uncle, Land of the Giants, The Virginian, The Courtship of Eddie's Father, Long Street, Mission Impossible, Barnaby Jones, Ironside, Cold Shack, Mannix, Hertricelli, with Albert Salmi, Starsky and Hutch, Cannon, Heart to Heart, Different Strokes, Fantasy Island, Chips, and L.A. Law. She appeared in the movies Stand Up and Be Counted, Kenner, He Rides Tall, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, Escape from Zarain, The Ladies' Man, and Operation Petticoat. And she was in the TV movies The Manhunter, with Albert Salmi, Poor Devil, Goldie and the Boxer, Fantasies, and A Mother's Justice. Jace Gorman was played by Warren Vanders. He was Brant on How the West Was Won. He was Ben on Daniel Boone, but not in the same episodes that Albert Salmi was in. And he was Chuck Davis on Empire, the 1962 show. He also turned up in episodes of The Fugitive, Mission Impossible, Iron Horse, The Big Valley, Search, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, Kung Fu, The Rockford Files, Mannix, Little House on the Prairie, Fame, Dallas, Cagney and Lacey, Arliss, and Judging Amy. He appeared in the movies Touched, Hot Lead and Cold Feet, Rooster Cogburn, The Revengers, and The Split. And he was in the TV movies Twice in a Lifetime, The Last Day, Mayday at 40,000 Feet, In the Glitter Palace, Child Bride of Short Creek, and Helltown. Bemis was played by Robert Edwards. This is his second of two episodes. He was also in the episode Blind Tiger. Oliver was played by Alan Maluai. This is his second of five episodes. He was also in And They Painted Daisies on His Coffin. Lou was played by Richard Brady. This is his second of three episodes. He was also in The Singapore File. The Desk Clerk was played by William Cataldo. This is his only credit. Toomey Walsh was played by Paul Carr. He was Clark on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Dr. Paul Summers on The Doctors. And Lieutenant Devlin on Buck Rogers. 
He also turned up in episodes of Peter Gunn, The Rifleman, Bonanza, Surfside 6, 77 Sunset Strip, Laramie, Rawhide, Perry Mason and the New Perry Mason, The Fugitive, Burke's Law, Gunsmoke, Star Trek, That Girl, Green Hornet, Adam-12, Get Smart, The Virginian, Columbo, Mod Squad, Ironside, The Rookies, Cannon, Mannix, Purchase Sally with Albert Salmi, SWAT, Ellery Queen, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Rockford Files, The Incredible Hulk, Dallas, Airwolf, Murphy Brown, and Murder, She Wrote. He appeared in the movies Night Eyes, Eat a Bowl of Tea, Raise the Titanic, Sisters of Death, The Severed Arm, The Dirt Gang, Ben, Posse from Hell, and The Young Don't Cry. And he was in the TV movies A Man for Hanging, The Deadly Tower, The Lives of Jenny Dolan, and The Wild Women of Chastity Gulch. And that is the payoff. I actually really do like this episode because even on rewatches when you know the story and you know how Jace and Madge and Vince and Lou and Toomey are all connected, it still makes for an entertaining watch. It's still fun to watch Steve and Fivo put together all of the pieces and take this unspooled narrative and knit it back up into a story so they can figure out what's going on. It comes together in a really satisfying way. Albert Salmi is great as Vince, Madeline Rue's greatest Madge, and as I said, Joyce Van Patten is always wonderful. I absolutely love her. And she manages to make Lila into such a sympathetic character, which you kind of need that considering pretty much everybody else that we're dealing with is garbage. Even Jace, to a certain extent, even though he has a very sad end and kind of comes across as a rather tragic figure by the time we get to him and to his death. But you need that one person who is not involved in this caper. Somebody who's not one of the the gang members. And Lila and the way she sees Jace kind of helps with that. So it's actually quite a very good episode and I definitely think you should give it a watch. Everybody's got something wrong with them. That's not gonna get you out of here, Kim. I know that. But you are. You're gonna get me out. The guys in here say you're the smartest cop on this rock. You're gonna help me, McGarrett. It's not why you hold the gun. Yeah. Yeah, I got the gun. And I'm not afraid to use it, I mean it. Go slow. Go slow, Kevin. That the dock is the only thing that's keeping you alive right now. Locked up in here. I'm not alive, McGarrett. But you're gonna get me out. Look, you had a fair trial. You were found guilty. Now, the jury agreed that you killed Tom Chaney. Well, they were wrong. I'm in here for something I didn't do. And you're gonna clear me. And what if I can't? And like you said, he's dead. I got nothing to lose, McGarrett. You better understand that. This is my last chance. I prayed for something to happen. No, it did. With Richie's confession. And I'm not gonna let it go, not for anything. All right. Okay, I'll do what I can. I give you my word, but... Press the gun. No! This time I gotta go all the way. So you better hurry. Look, it's been three years. It takes time to reopen a case. Well, I can't wait. You do it now, McGarrett, and you do it fast. I worked a double shift for the last two days. So, 
soon. I'm, I'm going to get tired. If I put down this gun now, I am finished. So that's your deadline, McGarrett. I don't know how long I can hold up, but that's how long you got. You in the dark. Episode 14, The Double Wall. Air date December 16, 1970, directed by Michael O'Hurley. This is his seventh of 36 episodes and written by Gerald L. Ludwig. This is his sixth of 12 episodes and Eric Bersavisi. This is also his sixth of 12 episodes. In the words of Wanda Jackson, there's a riot going on. Maybe not in cell block number nine, but definitely in the prison. Two guards bring Richie, who's been shanked, into the infirmary. The prisoner who works in the infirmary, Harry Callum, tends to Richie while the guards run off to find the doc. Alone, Richie confesses that he committed the murder that Callum, who has always proclaimed his innocence, is locked up for. However, he dies before he can repeat his claim in front of witnesses. Dr. Berman and the guard came in too late to help or hear him. Frustrated that his one chance to prove his innocence has apparently slipped away, Kellum grabs the guard's gun and turns the infirmary into a hostage situation. 5-0 is called because Kellum is specifically requested to speak with Steve. He first talks to the warden and the guard that had been in the infirmary with Kellum and the doctor. The guard tells Steve that Kellum swears that Richie made a deathbed confession that he committed the murder that Kellum is in for. Steve knows Richie. He put the hitman away. However, the warden is convinced of Kellum's guilt. He looked into the case himself, and Kellum's had his two appeals denied. Steve goes into the prison to talk to Kellum. In the infirmary, Steve finds that Kellum has taped the shotgun to his hand into Dr. Berman's neck. Kellum insists that Steve is going to clear him or the doc is going to die. But his demand comes with a clock. Kellum worked a double shift and hasn't had any sleep. Steve has until Kellum gets too tired to hold the gun. Then boom. Steve and 5 review Callum's case. He's accused of killing his business partner, a man named Cheney. The two were in real estate development together. However, Cheney was a bit of a gambler and had apparently used the company to pay his debts. Steve has the team chase leads, the gambling and the business, while he goes to see Callum's lawyer, Craig Wilkie. However, Wilkie can offer very little useful information. Once Steve leaves, Wilkie makes a call. Kono brings in a guy named Banyan, Richie's partner in hits. Banyan naturally won't give up any info. To make matters worse, Dana was having trouble tracking down the real estate business. Wilkie talks to a man named Bedford, assuring him not to worry about a particular witness. It's perjury if he changes his story. He won't risk that. And it appears that Wilkie is right. Dano talks to the officer who interviewed Ted Cohen at the scene of Cheney's murder, who says that by the time Cohen stopped talking, he'd convinced himself that he hadn't seen anything. And he sticks to that story when Steve talks to him. Despite pressure from Steve, Cohen won't bend. So Steve leaves him to think about the fate of a potentially innocent man rotting in jail. Outside, Banyan watches him go. The warden goes on the news to say that the guards have shoot-to-kill orders. Meanwhile, in the infirmary, Kellum is on the lookout for a double cross. Dr. Berman tries to soothe him and requests that he take off the tape, but Kellum refuses. He tells the doc that he doesn't think McGarrett has much time. Stephen Chen Ho check out a gambling den. The owner, in his roundabout way, informs them that Cheney wasn't the loser that everyone thought he was. He won big. Which makes sense when an accountant reveals that someone was trying very hard to make it look like someone was embezzling from the company. And Danny has just about worked his way through all of the shell companies to find out who. Falling asleep on his feet, Callum begs the doc to talk to him. Instead, Dr. Berman gets Callum talking about Cheney who he says was his polar opposite, but that's why they worked together so well. They were friends. 
His legs start to give out from fatigue, and Dr. Berman again asks Callum to take off the tape. This time he agrees, letting the doc cut the gun from his throat, though it remains taped to Callum's hand. Callum fears he'll never get out, that no one will believe him. Dr. Berman assures him that McGarrett does. Meanwhile, Todd Cohen makes the fateful decision to come clean. However, he calls the wrong number to do it. Okay, number one thing, right off the bat, this episode has an amazing guest cast. We have Monty Markham, we have William Shallard, we have Joan Van Ark, we have Sorrel Book, we have Mills Watson, we have Arjean Armstrong back, we have Al Harrington back. It is just an amazing cast. Okay, so that said, let's take a look at the episode because it actually is really good because it has a lot of cliche components that they put subtle twists on and they bring them together to make them work together really well. Because first of all, we have the innocent man in prison. Cop shows love to have this sort of thing. An innocent man who proclaims his innocence in prison and our heroes have to find out if that's true. In this case... We know that it's true because we hear the deathbed confession, yet another great trope that t- typically gets used in cop shows and that somebody confesses to committing some crime but then dies either before anybody else hears it or before any kind of justice can be extracted. In this case, our innocent man, there's no doubt to us that, that our innocent man is innocent. We heard the deathbed confession too, but no one else heard it. And because Kellum has been constantly protesting his innocence for the last three years, everybody's already tired of hearing it. They think he's taking a poor opportunity to find a way to get out of jail with this inmate's death. And his frustration finally boils over. He ends up snatching the gun away from the guard, which, oh my gosh, guard Al Harrington, what were you thinking? Talk about not having a good hand on your weapon. And he takes the doc hostage in the doctor's office. So now we have a hostage situation in a prison. Beautiful. We've already seen one of those in the box. And they, and like I said, they actually got R.G. Armstrong back. He played, I think it was the warden in the box episode with Gavin McLeod. And then they bring him back again to play the warden again for this particular hostage situation. So it was a nice little bit of continuity there. So once again, we have Steve going into the prison, going into a hostage situation, and it's because he's been specifically requested by Callum. So Callum demands that Steve clear his name. He knows he's innocent. He heard this deathbed condition. He knows that this is the guy who did it. Here is that information. Now you go prove my innocence and you have to do it or I'm going to kill the doctor. And Steve can't talk him out of this because as he says, he has nothing left to lose. And it's Monty Markham. So you believe that. He is a man at the end of his rope. Speaking of ropes, he has taped the shotgun to the doctor's neck and taped it to his hand. And because Steve tells him these sorts of things take time, he gives him a very interesting deadline. He's worked a double shift. He hasn't had any sleep. You have until I fall asleep because then the gun's going to go off. What makes that deadline so interesting is that A, it shows how shit prison labor is, and B, it's not definite. It's not set. This deadline could come in 20 minutes. It could come in three hours. It could come in eight hours if he gets a second wind. Steve has actually no idea how long he has while he's working this case. 
So it really kind of adds up to the tension of getting this investigated and getting it taken care of or else the doctor's going to die. So of course, this is Stephen Fivo. They go to the beginning. They take a look at the case, which the warden said that he investigated and he determined Callum was guilty. But Stephen Fivo take a look at things. And so they start looking into the victim. They look into Cheney. They look into his gambling. They look into what happened with his murder. They look into the witness. They look into the business. They start tracing leads like you're supposed to. Taking this case apart piece by piece. And that is when we discover some very interesting things. One, once again, William Shallard's shady as hell, which we kind of suspected. Because when Steve goes to talk to him, he seems very removed from the case. And he's not very forthcoming with any information. When Steve is like, we are on the clock, I need you to speak a little faster. He just, he doesn't get that. You were Harry Kellum's lawyer. And his friend. I was very close to Harry and uh, Tom Cheney too. You see, I represented their company from the very beginning. And, uh, I'm saw... sorry, Mr. Wilkie. I, I just don't have the time. Harry Cullen says that he's innocent. He swears that a gunman by the name of Ritchie made a deathbed confession of the murder today. Well, uh... I always believed. But nobody heard the confession except Kellum, so it's worthless unless there's some other evidence. Now, I'm looking for a starting point, anything. Well, uh, what can I tell you? Um, Harry and Tom Cheney were a fantastic business combination. Together, they were on their way to building a real estate now, empire. I, I'm sorry, Mr. Wilkie. Honestly, I'm sorry, but I just don't have the time. I need some answers, and I need them right now before Kellum pulls that trigger. Now, there was a witness, a man by the name of Cowan. Ted Cowan. Well, I talked to him for a number of hours, and he looked like Harry Salvation for a while. But at the trial, his testimony was of no value. You see, Cowan didn't really see anything until it was all over. All right, all right. Thank, thank you, Mr. Uh, Mr. McGarrett, that uh, doctor at the prison, Harry is no killer. You put a gun in a man's hand. And there's always a first time. But then you have Chin Ho tracking down the gambling aspect. And Danny tracking down the business aspect. And you come up with some very interesting things that point to this situation not being exactly what it seems. Because the real estate development business that they had after Cheney died and Kellen went to jail, something happened with the business. I don't exactly understand all of the legal terminations and, and what exactly they did with it. But basically, one business acquired it, but it turned out to be a shell company for another company. And basically, it's that thing that rich people do to be able to keep from paying taxes and to keep from being investigated by the government or being audited or, you know, it's that shady shit that rich people do to keep their money and to keep the legalities of their money hidden. Dano has to go through that. In the meantime, we get us a CPA who goes through the books and says that this business was not actually losing money. This business was not actually being embezzled. He's like, this is a work of art. That they doctored these books to make it look like someone was embezzling when there was nothing wrong with this company. It was not in trouble. They were not losing money. No one was stealing. Everything was peachy. So now you have this angle. Like, so who is making it look like there's something going on? And who's acquired this company since? And then we get to the gambling man, who is played by Arthur He. And this interrogation thrills me. You knew Tom Cheney? Perhaps. 
let us say, uh, isn't it possible that you and Tom Cheney shared equal fascination with the uh, laws of chance? Many things are possible. They say that sitting opposite a man on the gambling table reveals many facets of his character. I have heard it said. And they also say that while Tom Cheney gambled heavily, he also gambled badly. The numbers says you're a lucky man, Mr. McGarrett. And they said the same of Tom Cheney. But he had huge losses. Did he? There were witnesses at his trial who said that he had paid markers in thousands from Vegas to Macau. In gambling, Mr. McGarrett, it is a question of balance. The loss against the gain. Are you saying that Tom Cheney was a winner? All gamblers lose sometimes. The successful gambler wins far more than he loses. Tom Cheney was very successful. The records on such matters only show what was lost. No markers are needed when a gambler wins. In any case, such matters are usually conducted in private. Do I read you right? Tom Cheney won big. But somebody tried to create the impression that he was a loser. The world is filled with illusions, Mr. McGarrett. Created for many reasons. Because he, in a very roundabout way, says that Tom Cheney was not a loser. That he was a winner. And so now things are kind of coming together saying, okay, if Cheney wasn't embezzling, then there was really no motive for his murder, at least from the Kellum standpoint. And so there was only one witness to this murder, and that was Ted Cohen. And Danny goes and talks to the cop that interviewed him. The cop fills him in on Ted Cohen's state of mind and how he basically had talked himself out of th- out of seeing anything by the time he was done with the statement. Danny then asks about Wilkie calling on the policeman for the trial. And the policeman says that he was never summoned as a witness for the trial. He wasn't even informed about the trial. Never subpoenaed. Nothing. Now, given that Cohen, when he was on the stand, he couldn't give any specifics. He couldn't definitively say that he had seen Callum kill Cheney, but he just said, I saw a sedan that was a dark color. It could have been his, that sort of thing. To have the police officer be able to come up and add information to that would have benefited Wilkie's client, and yet Wilkie didn't call him to the stand. Instead, everything relied on Ted Cohen, and Ted Cohen wasn't worth a shit. And we find out that he wasn't worth a shit when Steve goes to talk to him. And he maintains that he did not see anything. He couldn't say anything definitive for or against Kellum. And he does not waver from his story. And we know because of Wilkie's phone call to Banyan's handler. What's his name? Everybody had a B name in this. Bedford. 
Wilkie talks to Bedford, who's concerned about this witness because it was a loose end. And Wilkie's not concerned with him because if he goes back on his word now, it's perjury. And that kind of seems to be the angle that Cohen is kind of going with. And that he's kind of saving his own skin, not only from these murderers, but also from now the legal system. And when his wife, Joan Van Ark, confronts him about it, he points out that, well, is he really that innocent when he's holding this doctor hostage? And she kind of points out, he wouldn't be in there if it wasn't for you. He wouldn't be in this position to be this desperate. And he's going to spend his life riding in there because of what you said. So ultimately, it is his wife that convinces Cohen to do the right thing. Unfortunately, the right thing for him is to call Wilkie and discuss it with him. And it ultimately leads to his demise. So we have all of this stuff going on. This is all a conspiracy in order to frame Callum just so Wilkie can gain control of the real estate development business. And the thing is, and you know I love complex plots. You know I love complicated schemes. The thing is, is that this one is just complicated enough, just complex enough that it's believable because you can totally see this lawyer employing known hitmen to murder this one business partner, frame the other business partner in order to gain control of his business. That makes sense. His knowledge of the law and using the shell companies and everything to hide what he's doing makes sense. Doctoring the books so it looks like Cheney was stealing from the company, which would give Callum motive, makes sense. It's complicated and it's complex, but it is not out of the realm of reality. And what is so brilliant about it is that like all conspiracies and like all plots like this, it hinges on everyone keeping their mouth shut and doing what they're supposed to do. So you have that one witness, that one loose end that threatens to unravel the whole scheme. And that's typically how these plots and these conspiracies come apart is that one person talks when they shouldn't. That's what makes this whole scheme so good is that it is complex and it is complicated and it is just a touch over the top, but necessary in order to cover all the bases. But of course, there's always that one little hitch in the giddy up that ends up being everyone's undoing. So it really is a great plot. Meanwhile, in the prison, we have a very interesting scene taking place in that Doc Berman is obviously, and you will hear that name in later episodes because that's what the coroner's name ends up being, but Dr. Berman is trying to keep Callum awake. Callum is looking out for a double cross. He thinks that the, the warden might raid the room and sacrifice them both just to get the hostage situation taken care of. And he's desperately trying to stay awake. And the doc is definitely trying to keep him awake. And he does this by keeping him talking. And when it looks like he's not going to be able to stay awake much longer, Callum finally relents and allows the doctor to take the tape off of his neck. So now the shotgun's not taped to him anymore. He can go and sit behind his desk. And Callum sits on the couch in his office. But he, the gun is still taped to his hand. And so you have Dr. Berman, who's still in this hostage situation, being very soothing and very calming to Callum. Because obviously they must have built up some kind of a rapport. He's been working in the infirmary, which I don't know if you would allow an inmate who'd been convicted of murder to work in an infirmary. I don't think that would be like the best idea. But you know what? Prison labor is prison labor. 
they don't always make the best decisions. Anyway, Callum eventually falls asleep and the doctor seizes that opportunity to cut the tape off of Callum's hand and take the gun away from him. And at first he's going to leave, but then he changes his mind and he goes and he sits down with the gun at his desk and decides that he's going to wait until Steve and Five-O figure this case out. And it's a beautiful twist, I think, because you would think that the doctor would seize that opportunity to escape. And the fact that he doesn't, the fact that he is convinced that Steve and Fivo will find out the truth and for him to leave would call a premature end to that and possibly get Callum in more trouble, possibly get him killed, depending on the situation. He chooses to let it play out instead of removing himself from a dangerous situation because Kellum could totally wake back up and, and try to take the gun away or something like that. He could get aggressive again if he wakes up. I know I'm aggressive when I'm woken up. It's actually a really cool twist to have the doctor have so much faith in McGarrett and Fivo to allow this to play out. And I think also to have some faith in Kellum in that maybe he has been telling the truth this whole time and that he's been innocent. So it was nice to see that. And of course, McGarrett and Fivo are going to figure it out. Because Wilkie just had to have Bedford and Banyan tie up that loose end, which gets them nothing but a pissed off wife, now widow. And the episode that started with a hostage situation ends with one. This guest cast wouldn't have to hold me hostage. I would stay with them willingly. Let's take a closer look at him. As I said, Harry Kellum was played by Monty Markham. This is his first of four episodes. He was Luke slash Ken Carpenter on The Second Hundred Years, Longfellow Deeds on Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, Clint Ogden on Dallas, Carter Robinson on Rituals, Captain Don Thorpe on Baywatch, Dean Pilkington on Campus Cops, and Clayton Hollingsworth on The Golden Girls. He was also Perry Mason on the new Perry Mason. He also turned up in episodes of Mission Impossible, The Mod Squad, Hogan's Heroes, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The New Dick Van Dyke Show, Barnaby Jones, Cannon, Ellery Queen, Lucan, Trapper John M.D., Eight is Enough, The Incredible Hulk, Heart to Heart, Simon and Simon, Love Boat, Fantasy Island, The A-Team, Murder, She Wrote, Melrose Place, Grace Under Fire, Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, Fringe, and Leverage. He appeared in the movies Reborn, Daddy Issues, Get Married or Die, We Are Still Here, Mean City, Judgment Day, Separate Ways, Airport 77, Midway, One is a Lonely Number, The Guns of the Magnificent Seven, and Project X, the 1968 film. He was also in the TV movies Death Takes a Holiday, Visions, Relentless, Dropout Father, Baywatch, Panic at Malibu Pier, and the 1995 remake of Piranha. As I said, Craig Wilkie was William Shallard. This is his third of three episodes. He was also in the two-part episode, Once Upon a Time. Frida Cohen was played by Joan Van Ark. She was Valene Ewing on Knott's Landing, Dallas, and the 2013 Dallas. She was Gloria Simmons Abbott on The Young and the Restless. Dee Dee Baldwin on We've Got Each Other, Nurse Annie Carlisle on The New Temperatures Rising Show, and she was the voice of Spider-Woman on Spider-Woman. 
She also turned up in episodes of Peyton Place, The Mod Squad, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, The Odd Couple, Night Gallery, Mannix, The FBI, Barnaby Jones, MASH, Cannon, Rhoda, The Rockford Files, Kojak, Macmillan and Wife, The Love Boat, Touched by an Angel, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Nanny, and Nip Tuck. She appeared in the movies Diamond Zero, Up Michigan, Loyal Opposition, The Last Dinosaur, and Frogs. And she was in the TV movies Shell Game, Shakedown on the Sunset Strip, Menu for Murder, Terror on Track 9, Tainted Blood, In the Shadows Someone's Watching, When the Dark Man Calls, and Tornado Warning. Dr. Sam Berman was Sorrel Book. He was best known as Boss Hawk on The Dukes of Hazard and on the cartoon The Dukes. He also appeared in episodes of Route 66, The Naked City, The Patty Duke Show with William Shallard, Dr. Kildare, The Girl from Uncle, Mission Impossible, Ironside, The Wild Wild West, Room 222, Cannon, Mash, Gunsmoke, The New Perry Mason with Monty Markham, The New Temperatures Rising with Jonah and Ark, The New Dick Van Dyke Show, Cold Shack, The Night Stalkers, The Streets of San Francisco, The Bob Newhart Show and Newhart, Black Sheep Squadron, Columbo, All in the Family, Little House on the Prairie, Good Times, Soap, Love Boat, Alice, Black's Magic, and Full House. He appeared in the movies Record City, The Other Side of Midnight, Freaky Friday, the 1976 version, Devil Times 5, The Take, The Iceman Cometh, Slaughterhouse 5, What's Up Doc, Up the Down Staircase, and he was the voice of Pinky in Rockadoodle. And he was in the TV movies The Adventures of Nick Carter, The Last Angry Man, Brenda Starr, and The Greatest Thing That Almost Happened. Ted Cohen was played by Richard Rote. He was Dr. Jerry Chandler on The Doctors. He also turned up in episodes of The Fugitive, The Girl from Uncle, Columbo, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Macmillan and Wife, Room 222, Heck Ramsey, Cannon, The New Perry Mason with Monty Markham, Logan's Run, The Mob New Heart Show, Kojak, Fantasy Island, Happy Days, Dallas, Falcon Crest, St. Elsewhere, Hill Street Blues, Dynasty, Matlock, The Golden Girls, Simon and Simon, Night Court, Who's the Boss, Mad About You, The Nanny, Living Single, Coach, Ellen, Friends, and 24. He appeared in the movies March, Heart and Souls, Murder by Numbers, Corvette Summer, and Westworld. And he was in the TV movies Sarah T, Portrait of a Teen Alcoholic, Almost Heaven, The Night the City Screamed, and Sins of the Mother. Bedford was played by Peter Whitney. He was Sergeant Buck Sinclair on Rough Riders. He also appeared in episodes of Bourbon Street Beat, Mr. Lucky, Peter Gunn, The Untouchables, The Riflemen, Beverly Hillbillies, Wagon Train, Perry Mason, Gunsmoke, Big Valley, The Virginian, Green Acres, Petticoat Junction, The Monkees, Mannix, Bonanza, and Night Gallery. He appeared in the movies The Ballad of Cable Hogue, In the Heat of the Night, The Sword of Alibaba, Domino Kid, The Sea Chase, and The Three Strangers. Banyan was played by Mills Watson. He was Uncle Buster on Harper Valley PTA. And he was Deputy Perkins on The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo and BJ and the Bear. He also turned up in episodes of Mission Impossible, The Virginian, Bonanza, Longstreet, Ironside, Mod Squad, MASH, Emergency, Gunsmoke, The Waltons, Bionic Woman, Black Sheep Squadron, The Six Million Dollar Man, Barnaby Jones, The Incredible Hulk, Chips, The Rockford Files, Super Train, Voyagers, Airwolf, The A-Team, TJ Hooker, Hunter, The Fall Guy, Simon and Simon, and Murder, She Wrote. He appeared in the movies Bulletproof, Going Undercover, Cujo, Up in Smoke, Papillon, Dirty Little Billy, and Tick, Tick, Tick. And it was in the TV movies, The Heat of Anger, Mystery in Dracula's Castle, The Story of Pretty Boy Floyd, Dead Man on the Run, 
the Kansas City Massacre, the Invasion of Johnson County, Ransom for Alice, The Last Ride of the Dalton Gang, She Knows Too Much, and Gunsmoke, To the Last Man. As I said, the warden was played by R.G. Armstrong. This was his second of two episodes. He was also in the box. Man Fook Lowe was played by Arthur He. This is his fifth of nine episodes. The first guard was played by Al Harrington. This is his third episode of five before he became Ben Kakua. The TV reporter was Bob Sevy. This is his second of ten episodes. We also saw him in Samurai. Richie was played by Morgan Sean. This is his second of six episodes. We also saw him in All the King's Horses. Sergeant Spivak was played by Terry Plunkett. This is his second of 16 episodes. We also saw him in The Last Eden. Beldock was played by Bob Jones. This is his third of three episodes. We also saw him in Tiger by the Tail and Over 50 Steel. Rycourt was played by Bill Bigelow. This is his fourth of 15 episodes. And the second guard was played by Frank Kamanu. This is his only credit. And that is The Double Wall. Really great episode. Like I said, you have a lot of elements going on. You have Fido trying to unravel this case. You have Wilkie and his co-conspirators trying to keep it under wraps. And you have the drama that is unfolding in the hostage situation in the doctor's office. Everybody plays their part beautifully. It's intense because we know that Kellum is innocent. We know that time is running out. And we know 5 is eventually going to figure out, but how are they going to figure it out? It's riveting from beginning to end. Give it a watch. Hey, you know me, McGarrett. Live and let live. That's my motto. And that is episode 33 of Bookum Dano. Thank you so much for joining me for these two episodes. Both of them are really good episodes. Definitely, definitely give them both a watch. We have the payoff, which we get to see one double cross scheme, which is kind of like a triple cross scheme, come apart because one person talks. And then we get to see a very complicated murder conspiracy unravel thanks to one person talking. And of course, the hard work and investigative work of Five O which is why we're tuning in anyway, right? And I am so grateful that you are tuning in to listen to me ramble on about these episodes. I really do hope I was coherent. Like I said, not a whole lot of sleep. But thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me. And thank you for putting up with my rambles and tangents. If you would like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookham Dano. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. And if you need my rambling in real time, you can get that by following me on Twitter at KikiWrites. So make sure your double cross isn't double crossing you and that all your loose ends are tied up. Until next time. Aloha.